Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for April 17th, 2018. On today's show, we're going to be talking about the latest film and TV news. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And writer Chris Evangelista. Hello. Okay, guys, we got a bunch of news to get to, uh, but before we get into that, I wanted to talk a little bit about... Um, iTunes reviews. Um, I, I want to thank everybody out there that is listening to this podcast. I know you usually hear at the end of this podcast me uh, trying to convince you to go to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. It helps us quite a bit. We have a five-star rating on iTunes with like uh, over 400 reviews. Uh, that's pretty awesome. Uh, recently, uh, some guy left this review. I, I just wanted to bring this up. Uh, he gave us two stars. Says uh, He says, Peter Serretta is so unbelievably pretentious, and I just can't listen anymore. The dude actually said once, quote, I'm not much of a comedy guy, unquote, totally dismissing an entire genre of film. The reason why I bring this up is not because I, I care about what this guy says, <laughs> and I'm obviously not leaving this podcast, um, but I wanted to uh, clarify here. When I when I said I'm not that much of a comedy guy, and it, because I, I it, it bothers me when people misconstrue something I say. <laughs> um, when I say I'm not much of a comedy guy, that means that like you know typically I don't love comedy films and TV shows. I think in, in the last week alone, I've talked about you know Blockers and Game Night, and last last night I watched caught up on two episodes of Silicon Valley. I obviously like comedy. Um, I don't. I, I think people. I think, uh, and you guys, you guys could uh, speak up here, but there's there's typically genres of films and stuff that is, sometimes it's not someone's thing. Like, uh, you know, I, you know, typically musicals aren't my thing either. <laughs> that doesn't mean that I dislike all musicals. That doesn't mean that I'm dismissing an entire genre of film. Uh, you know, I still saw The Greatest Showman. I still uh, love that soundtrack. Um, uh, are there any um, genres of film or television that like aren't aren't your thing typically? 
Uh, for me, I'm not I'm not really a horror guy, so that's one thing. I mean, uh, like like you're saying with comedy, your relationship with comedy is very similar to my relationship with horror. Like, I'll still see the occasional horror movie here and there, but it's not a genre that I'm super that I'm always super excited about. Where I make sure to go out and see you know every entry in that genre, um, just because I you know I'm not like yeah I, I, yeah. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah. hey, Chris, is there any for you? Uh, I'm actually not a big comedy person either. I mean, I like comedies. I like a lot of classic comedies, but uh, if there's like one genre I don't actively seek out, it would probably be comedy. And really, animation I'm not big on either, unless it's like Pixar or uh, a really big Disney movie. Like I love Moana, but like uh, modern animated films, I don't really seek them out as much as most people seem to do. Yeah. Any, anyway, so this is my, my clarification because I thought it was uh, a, an important distinction to make. And I think, you know, all of us, even though we have these uh, genre dislikes, uh, we still do selective picking. If we hear people, Ben, if you hear a lot of people saying A Quiet Place is a movie to see, you know, you're probably going to go out and see A Quiet Place. Yeah. And I was like excited about that one from the trailer itself. Like I, yeah. I've heard such good things about Hereditary and that one I'm actually so excited about that I haven't seen any of the trailers at all. And I'm just going to go in completely blind. And that's something that, you know, if I hadn't have heard great things about that film, I probably would have avoided it altogether just because I'm not a huge horror fan. But I've heard so many good things. I'm definitely going to go check that one out as soon as it comes out. Yeah. So anyways, it's just my way of saying, you know, it, it. I think it's cool. You know, it's OK to be a film fan and have, you know, parts of this art form that you don't typically, you know, uh, get super excited for. Like, you know, you don't have to love everything and have to, you know, I don't know. Yeah. So anyways, let's move into the news. Uh, let's start off with the Pet Cemetery remake. We have the first uh, or a little bit of cool casting for this uh, film. Chris, you wrote up for the site. What do we know? Oh, uh, yeah. So uh, Jason Clark, who was in Zero Dark Thirty and uh, the one of the Planet of the Apes films and Terminator Genesis, um, he is in talks to star in the Pet Cemetery remake, um, which is coming from the directors of uh, this indie horror movie called Starry Eyes. Uh, he would play the lead character, who is um, a doctor who moves to a, a, a small town in Maine, and he finds out there's a cursed Native American burial ground uh, in his yard, basically. Um, Pet Cemetery, of course, was turned into a film in uh, 1989, and this is technically a remake but also a, a new adaptation of the Stephen King novel of the same name um and uh, you're a big fan of Jason Clark I am I'm a big fan of pretty much everything involved with the story I love uh Stephen King as I've mentioned several times before and Pet Cemetery is actually my favorite Stephen King novel so I'm very excited about this and I like Jason Clark a lot he has a very uh, he has this like every man quality, I think, to him, where he doesn't really seem like a movie star. He seems more like a, a working class kind of guy, and that's kind of what this part needs. So this is this is pretty good casting, and it's pretty high profile casting too, because the original Pet Cemetery at the time, the biggest star in that movie was Fred Gwynn from The Monsters playing the neighbor. So this is a kind of a step up from that. I don't know. Jason Clark to me is kind of bland, but maybe it's a, uh, you know, I've had some pushback because I feel like Hollywood was trying to make him like the leading, like, you know, big action hero 
for a couple, you know, in a couple blockbuster films, um, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes and uh, Terminator Genesis, and there might be another one. Um, but uh, as an everyman, I kind of like him. I, I have not seen uh, or I've not read a Pet Cemetery the the book. I've only seen the movie, uh, and I, I was never really a huge fan of the movie. So, uh, Chris, I'm wondering why is Pet Cemetery your favorite Stephen King book? Uh, well, I, as I said, I'm a huge Stephen King fan. I've read all his books, but Pet Cemetery, not all of his books, but most of his books, but Pet Cemetery is the only Stephen King book that actually ever scared me. Um, I mean, I'm such a, I'm the opposite of bad in that I'm such a big horror fan that I've, I've grown sort of immune to horror where I love horror. I love watching horror. I love reading horror, but none of it actually scares me. I just enjoy watching it. But Pet Cemetery is that rare horror story that legitimately like freaked me out when I first read it. It was one of those books where I, I literally got so scared of it that I had to like hide the book because if I saw it like on my <laughs> shelf, it would like freak me out. That's a, that's so this 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 book has always sort of stuck with me. And um, I don't know. I just I love it. So I'm very excited to see a new adaptation of it. What what age were you when you re- when you read it for the first time? God, I was young. I was probably much too young to read this. Um and uh at the at the time I had this really hardcore phobia of death. I mean, I think everyone's afraid of death on some level, but I was really afraid of it as a kid for for some reason I was just like super paranoid about dying and this book it's literally all about dying so my parents probably should not have let me read this but they did and uh it scarred me for life but in in a good way and that it made me uh seek out more horror i guess i feel like um ben have you had a book when you that you read when you were a kid that you probably shouldn't have Oh, man, uh, putting me on the spot. I'm sure. Well, I mean, not because, uh, like I said, I'm not really a big horror fan. So I never really um, sought out horror books as a kid. But there were books that I read that I fully like I, I didn't fully grasp what was going on. Like I read a lot of Michael Crichton stuff at an age when I was too young to understand the intricacies of <laughs> of a lot of the uh, the tech heavy aspects of what he was talking about in those books. Um, I remember loving the book Timeline, which I know has been made into a terrible movie. But uh, I love that book when I was like, I don't know, 12 or 13 or something. And I just like the idea of the time travel aspects of it. And there were so many, you know, looking back and thinking about that book, there were so many things that I just did not pick up on at all. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, that's probably not exactly the answer you're looking for to that question. But now, yes. it's actually funny that you mentioned that because the the book that I was thinking about uh, that I read as a kid, you know, Jurassic Park had just come out and I had uh, gone through Michael Creighton's uh, uh what do you call that? Uh, bookology. Yeah, I'm not sure what that. What, what is that term? I want. I keep wanting to say bookography, but that's yeah, not right. I don't know. Um, what, whatever it is, I you know I was I was on a spree of reading Michael Crichton books and Rising Sun. I read that, and at the core of that story, I think this is like graphic murder, like during like a threesome sex thing, and I think I was like maybe in middle school at the time. <laughs> I was like, what am I reading? Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I, my dad uh, definitely should not have bought me that book. Uh, he probably had no idea what was in it. Anyway. Uh, so bi- bibliography, Peter, is the bibliography. word looking for. Yes. <laughs> yes. Before we get tons of angry emails. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyways, let's move on to Marvel. Avengers 4, uh, we still don't know the title. Uh, some have speculated that Avengers Infinity War would end at a place with a trailer or after 
after credit scene that would reveal finally real reveal the title of Avengers four. Uh, but that doesn't seem to be the case. Ben, what do we know? Yes, in a new interview, uh, the directors Anthony and Joe Russo, who directed both uh, Avengers Infinity War and the upcoming Avengers 4, said that that is not going to happen and it's going to be a long time before fans know what the title of Avengers 4 is. Their exact quote when asked if they you know will be seeing some sort of post credits thing in uh, infinity war that that reveals the title for avengers 4 was no no it's going to be quite a long while before people see that title we need people to see this movie digest this movie and then we can tell them what the next story is they're going to see so it sort of makes sense the idea that uh you know people could spoil the title for people uh, for other people if they see the movie before everybody else uh we know that the title for avengers 4 is supposed to be a big spoiler for something that happens in Infinity War. The Russo brothers have previously said that people should be scared of the title for Avengers 4 because of the implications it carries for Infinity War and and what that means. So um, that's, you know, kind of an interesting thing. And I think that it makes sense that they would want to uh, contain that as much as possible and allow people the opportunity to go into Infinity War as fresh as possible if that's something they're looking to do. And uh, the other thing that was interesting in this um, interview that they said was they were talking about the difference between Marvel Studios Phase 3 and Phase 4, which I think uh, Avengers 4 officially marks the end of Phase 3. I'm sorry, throwing all these numbers out. It's probably people's heads are spinning. But uh, the difference is, quote, pretty drastic between those two phases. Um I believe it was Joe Russo said, I think massively different. I think that this is if Marvel has been writing a book for 10 years, it's the end of the book and someone is going to write a new book. Who knows what that new book will be, but this is an ending and that'll be a new beginning and that being whatever happens in phase four. Crazy. Um, well, this is good because, you know, the movie is going to come out uh, next week. Next Monday is the world premiere in Hollywood. Uh, so, you know, uh, I would install those plugins for your web browsers and, you know, mute words on Twitter because, you know, you, you can't trust everybody. You can trust us at Slash Film. We will not spoil it for you. Um, but uh, we'll definitely not know the title for Avengers 4 for a little bit, which is kind of crazy because I thought coming off of uh, Infinity War, we would have some idea what Avengers 4 is. But um, maybe maybe we were right on track when we were saying, you know, Captain Marvel and the Skrulls uh, might be more of an indication of what Avengers 4 will be than actually Infinity War itself. But we'll have to see. Um, let's move on to DC some big news dc warner brothers has hired a director for the harley quinn movie which harley quinn movie i'm not sure chris what do we know oh yeah so kathy yan who um she actually started her career as a wall street journal reporter and uh made a few short films and uh she directed a film called uh dead pigs which played at sundance this year which i confess i haven't really heard much about um, she's been hired to helm a, a Harley Quinn movie. Um, uh, here's where things get a little muddled. So the story where it originated at Deadline reports that this is being uh, called the Birds of Prey movie, but Harley Quinn doesn't really fit with that. She, this sounds more like the Gotham City Sirens movie, which so Birds of Prey is superheroes, whereas Gotham City Sirens is supervillains. And uh, really what it sounds like Warner Brothers might be doing here is they're combining those two ideas into one specific 
female driven film because for a while there was going to be a uh, Gotham City Sirens movie directed by David Ayer who directed Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn in Suicide Squad but now it's not really clear if that's happening so my guess based on this story is that Warner Brothers is is combining those those two female centric films into one specific movie here and uh really all we know about it is that Kathy Ann is directing it and that uh Margot Robbie will be back to play Harley Quinn um and uh this director you know this film Dead Pigs that premiered at Sundance um, has a hundred percent Rotten Tomatoes, but with only six reviews, an average rate of, rating of eight out of ten. Uh, one person calls it delightfully quirky, and um, I, I would read you the synopsis for this, but it sounds kind of crazy. A, a bunch of people converge as thousands of dead pigs float down the river towards a rapidly modernizing Shanghai, China, based on true events. So interesting. It's interesting that Warner Brothers would see this movie and be like, yes, that is the woman that needs to direct the Harley Quinn movie. But um, <laughs> but none of us have seen none of us have seen the, this film. Uh, ben, you were at Sundance. Did you hear any buzz about this film? I didn't hear any buzz about it and I didn't get a chance to see it. Unfortunately, I couldn't fit it into my schedule. But it sounds interesting. And the idea that a big studio is looking for a blockbuster director uh, among the ranks of Sundance directors is not super surprising considering that people like Colin Trevorrow and Jordan, Jordan Voigt Roberts and all sorts of uh, filmmakers of that quality had, had had similar trajectories in recent years. So it's just cool to see for me to see uh, an Asian woman having that same uh, career trajectory here. So I'm kind of excited to see somebody like that get an opportunity here. Yeah. I want to, I want to add that I'd much rather Warner Brothers take a chance with a new director like this than give David Ayer another film. Like I don't ever want to see a David Ayer film again. So please go out and find more up and coming filmmakers like this. Yeah, uh, you know, obviously Marvel. I mean, this is uh, <laughs> DC fan members are going to be pissed off. This uh, they're kind of copying Marvel's lead here because Marvel has for some time been going to Sundance, uh, seeing films and, and getting those directors. Uh, you know, they they got uh, Ryan Coogler for Black Panther, uh, Cop Car director um, John Watts, John Watts yeah. for uh, Spider Man Homecoming. Which, by the way. Uh, you know, as ridiculous as that plot synopsis sounds, I don't I wouldn't think on paper that I would pick a guy that, you know, is directing a movie about uh, two kids that have stolen a cop car to direct a Spider-Man movie. So um, but it, it is kind of cool that they, they did find a female filmmaker to to helm this. And we'll see. Well, I, I'm going to have to search out this uh, film and actually see it. Uh, let's move on to uh, another story that actually broke last week. I don't think we talked about it on the podcast, and that is uh, King of Kong champion Bill, Billy Mitchell was stripped of his Donkey Kong world record score. Now, uh, many of you have probably seen the documentary The King of Kong, A Fistful of Quarters. If you have not, I would uh, seek it out. I'm not sure if it's on Netflix or where it is right now, but it is one of my favorite movies of all time. I have like a wall, a corner of my uh, my home dedicated to King of Kong. I have a Donkey Kong machine that is signed by both uh, Billy Mitchell and... Uh, uh, Steve Weeby. Uh, but anyways, okay, in that documentary, it is kind of this uh, this um, underdog sports tale where it, it, it's this guy, Billy Mitchell, who is in all all respects almost like a living uh, – like, like a uh, 
cartoon villain that li- exists in real life um who has been like the champion of donkey kong for many years and this guy this newcomer steve weeby comes onto the scene and is trying to break billy's record and uh in in the documentary uh, not to spoil things but billy mitchell presents this videotape of footage of him playing donkey kong and ach- achieving the first score of over a million points in donkey kong and um you know, this documentary came out, what, like 10 years ago or something? Mm-hmm. Uh, recently, uh, some some people have been analyzing the footage because the footage was in the documentary. And some of the footage showed some artifacting that seemed to be impossible to be produced by a, a real-life Donkey Kong arcade machine. It's the artifacting that people uh, typically see in a meme uh, machine, which is like an emulator on your computer, and the problem with that is, with these scores, not to get <laughs> these scores, um, you know, they're they're regulated in some way. You have to achieve them on the actual arcade cabinet themselves. If you achieve it on an emulator, um, there is the opportunity to pause and go back and. There's actually, I'm sure if you've gone on YouTube, you can see like people that have completed Super Mario Brothers, like in the perfect possible fastest score possible. And they've achieved that by like, you know, when they die, they rewind back to the time that they, you know, and making all the perfect decisions. Um, So not to say Billy Mitchell did that, but it seems like there's some evidence that he did that Uh, today or yesterday. He came out with a video responding to uh, these uh, claims, which, by the way, his his uh, title has been removed from Twin Galaxies, the uh, largest tracker of video game world records. Uh, they're uh, used by Guinness Book of World Records. Uh, ben, you wrote an update for the site. What did Billy Mitchell say? Yeah, so he it's basically just like a minute long, essentially a minute long video. And he very sincerely is standing in the hallway of some convention somewhere and just saying that he's innocent and he's promising that he's going to provide evidence that proves that he didn't do any wrongdoing. He's like saying that, um, you know, he wishes he has the he had the evidence in his hand so he could show everyone right now. But he is like going to be completely open and cooperative in, in terms of investing investigations and things like that. To me, it, it seems like a little bit I don't know. It it strikes me as a strange thing because Twin Galaxies, the company that you mentioned before that tracks these video game records, has spent months already doing research specifically into these uh, allegations ever since they come, you know, they came up. And well, he's also hinting that there there was a changing of the guard in Twin Galaxies from when we see the documentary to now. And I think he's hinting that there's something going on there. Uh, You know, this documentary that launched seth gordon's career he's the guy that uh did what horrible bosses and um uh, what other movies pixels <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, identity theft um seth gordon's career uh, uh he um I, I would love to see him go back and do a sequel to king of kong like chronicling all that has happened since because there's some crazy stuff happening and uh billy mitchell love him or hate him is like one of my favorite people to watch it's kind of like my love for michael bay like they're just so ridiculous cartoon characters that like are unbelievable that they actually exist in real life um i would love to see uh a, a further documentary 
chronicling those tales. Uh, yeah, and he like guys? completely embraces his his character too. And even in this video that, like I said, is only a minute and ten seconds long, and it's kind of sad. It's just him standing there saying that he's innocent. Even in this video, he ends it with this really enthusiastic thumbs up, which is like his thing, his like trademark thing almost that he does all throughout the King of Kong. So he's definitely still uh, in character almost, or or still, you know, it's it's not like he's been broken. Uh, at do least you from think the... he is in character, or do you think that's just who he is? I mean, I think it's probably like a like a Hulk Hogan kind of scenario. It's like, it, you know, I, I don't know if he acts this way when he's at home and nobody is watching, but it's probably like as soon as he steps out his front door, he puts on the <laughs> Billy Mitchell costume and and becomes this guy. I don't know. I, I I'm just fascinated with him. I I want to see more, and I'm I'm very curious to see what evidence he provides. Uh, and I I hope someone's making a documentary about this. Uh, but let's move on. Uh, to the I, I mentioned Pixels before. I think Christopher Columbus did uh, Pixels. Maybe I was wrong about the the crediting on that. Um, but uh, he uh, another Christopher Columbus film gremlins uh is you know they've been working on a sequel for quite some time and now columbus is saying it's going to be a reboot not a sequel what do we know ben yeah so in a new interview with an outlet called metro us earlier this week uh, chris columbus who wrote the original gremlins from 1984 was asked about a goonies sequel and he basically sort of brushed that off saying the same thing that we've heard a lot which is that the cast is essentially kind of too old and you know it's still in the water but not necessarily moving forward but he he did offer up an update about gremlins 3 which we've been hearing about for years and he said gremlins 3 we're actively talking about that so that's what i'm working on with my production company 1492 pictures it will almost definitely be a reboot end quote so that is it sort of contradicts what we've heard about the movie so far because we previously heard that the film will pick up 30 years after the original movie so it would be sort of like a legacy sequel one of those films like uh star wars the force awakens or jurassic world or tron Creed. legacy Right, yeah, the, where it picks up years after the events of the original movie and it features the characters that we know sort of passing the torch to a new generation. And we had been, you know, I think Zach Galligan, who's the star of Gremlins, explicitly said a couple years ago that Gremlins 3 is not going to be a reboot. But now Columbus is saying that it's almost definitely going to be a reboot. So uh, in, in our Slash Film Slack channel, we were just sort of debating whether or not Columbus misspoke here or whether he maybe doesn't know what the term reboot actually means or if he actually has really changed the, the entire concept of this pitch since we heard about it last year so uh yeah I, I really don't know i guess we're gonna have to wait and see and hear further confirmation about this i'm betting that it's kind of a reboot it's like it's gonna be retelling the story of gremlins but it'll probably have uh, zach's character billy in some kind of small role indicating that this the events of the other films have happened um, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that, that's that's my guess on this. Um, but let's move on from there to Neil Blomkamp. Uh, we haven't heard uh, much from him in uh, recent years. He's been making some short films. And now uh, the director of District 9 is trying to crowdfund his next feature film. Chris, what is going on here? 
Yeah, so uh, Neil Blumkamp, he made District 9, he made Elysium, he made, of course, Chappie, and uh, since then he's he's been focusing on these, these short films he's making for his uh, production company called Oats Studios. They're, they're little short films, and the idea of the short films was to sort of test the public's uh, awareness to try to figure out what audiences want, basically, where he, he would he would make a short film and see if anyone reacted to it and see if he could turn that into a feature, sort of. But now he's crowdfunding his next feature, which is called Firebase. Um, we don't really know a lot about it. We know it's a, it's a sci-fi action film, as all his, t- his films tend to be. But yeah, so he's trying to just raise funds to get the film made. And he's doing it in this, this sort of down and dirty way where he's not really focusing on uh, perks. Like a lot of people who run Kickstarters and other crowdfunding things, they, they offer like a million different perks in order to get you to contribute. But I mean, he has a few things like that. But really, all he says in the video is that what he wants is just money to put up on the screen, which he could then turn into more money. So he's being <laughs> honest, at least. He's not He's not like gussying it so up. So wait, if, he, if, if I donate money for this film, I get nothing? Uh, you get a few things. You get your name in the credits. Um, you also get uh, the first look to the film because he's not going to just release it for free online. He's going to upload it to a, a paid platform when it's done. But anyone who backs the film for a specific amount of money, will get a copy of the film for free. Uh, you get some like concept art, but there's really not, you know, there's not a whole lot here. But uh, you know, I guess really, <laughs> your interest in this depends on if you want to see a new Neil Blomkamp film. So if you're you're a big Blomkamp fan, this is for you. Well, he, this is interesting because I feel like you know, as film fanatics, we're traditionally uh, in the in the um, the corner of the filmmaker and the auteur we want them to you know let the stu- let the have the studios let leave them to do their thing and you know giving neil Baumkamp the money to do what he wants sounds like a great idea on paper but uh neil Baumkamp's best movie was under the the uh the guide of peter jackson um and every film since it seemed like he had uh less of uh you know had more free reigns and it became you know then we got chappy uh so um (laughs) so chris do you think uh do you think this is a good idea to to give him like full range or do you think this is the kind of guy that needs a producer that can like say no to him I mean, you know, on one hand, I like the idea of filmmakers taking control of their films and not having to answer to middlemen and all that stuff. But I really think it, it depends on the filmmaker. I'm not a huge Blomkamp fan. Um, uh, you know, if this were like Martin Scorsese, I'd be like, yes, I will throw money at Martin Scorsese to let him do whatever the hell he wants. But Neil Blomkamp, I don't know. I'm not exactly uh, – <laughs> in the mood for a new Blomkamp film. So uh, again, if you're a fan of his, this is, this is for you, but it's, it's definitely not for me. Ben, what is your thoughts on this? Uh, I watched the video and it looks like they're doing some pretty impressive stuff in terms of visual effects uh, on a small scale anyway, for, you know, for uh, the level of, of production quality and stuff that, that Oats studios is able to capture. But at a certain point you almost need to be, um, I guess operating under the auspices of a big studio if you want 
the benefits that come along with that. You know, there's a lot of negatives that that come with that in terms of having to answer to a lot of people. But there's also tons of positives in terms of the infrastructure being in place to give you the resources that you need to make a project look stunning. And and some of this stuff, some of the footage that we see in these videos, it's like, yeah, it's almost there, but it's not quite there. And like the quality of the acting and stuff doesn't exactly seem all that great. So I don't know. It's it's very much what Chris said. If you're a big uh, a Blom head or whatever the <laughs> Blom camp fans call themselves, um, then maybe this will be uh, just enough to pique your interest. But in terms of general audiences, or if you showed me a completed trailer for a Firebase movie and I would have to pay five bucks to see it or something, I probably wouldn't see it uh, based on what I have seen in that video. Um, true story. I saw Avatar with Neil Blomkamp. Um, this is, uh, I was in Vancouver, uh, visiting the set of Sucker Punch and we got to see a set, uh, a, a press screening of Avatar there and Neil Blomkamp uh, was sitting near me. Anyways, uh, uh, <laughs> One thing I wanted to say is, you know, a few years ago, I was kind of on the bandwagon that, uh, you know, we're coming off of, like, say, um, Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland, which looked horrible. It looked like, you know, he filmed people on a green screen and had, like, the visual effects people do their thing around. You know, he didn't, like, kind of care about that. He was like, you do your thing, I'll do my thing. And um, it... uh, I kind of came into this mind that we were going to get this new generation of filmmakers that had grown up, uh, you know, utilizing visual effects. You know, people like Neil Blomkamp, people like Gareth Edwards, uh, you know, uh, Joseph Kaczynski, who ended up doing Tron, like that these people would end up, you know, visual effects would not be passed on to like, you know, that team over there to do, but it would be one of the brushes in their like arsenal of, you know, painting the picture that they're making. And we would get these exceptional films out of that. Uh, that has yet to be the case. Um, <laughs> I, I've been proven wrong at every, every step of the way, but uh, t- I don't know. I, I still somewhat believe that one day we're going to get this, um, this auteur that has such a sense of visual effects that it, it will blow our minds in the same way, you know, like the biggest leaps of like, you know, like Jurassic park, uh, Ben, am I wrong? (laughs) Um, I don't know if you're wrong. I think you're probably just a few years too early on that prediction. I think that does sound like something, and especially with like the democratization of the filmmaking process and how easy and cheap it is to relatively speaking to make movies, uh, small indies and stuff. Now, I mean, every year it's getting easier uh, and cheaper. So I think there there is going to be pretty soon an entire generation that grew up um, not just specializing in one aspect of movie making like a lot of the old school uh, people who came up through film schools did, but people who in the I hate using this term, but like the YouTube generation who um, essentially Uh, were responsible for almost every aspect of production. I think there are going to be a whole new group of people with that skill set. It's just a matter of whether or not they're going to be able to incorporate that into a movie in the way that I think you're envisioning, Peter. Yeah. Well, uh, so yeah, I'm just a few, a few years too early. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, uh, (laughs) let's move on to how to train your dragon. The third film has been announced. The title revealed. Uh, What do we know about this, Ben? Yes, the new movie, the third and supposedly final film in the How to Train Your Dragon franchise is going to be called How to Train Your Dragon, The Hidden World. And this one comes out on March 
1st, I believe. Let me look at that and make sure that's right. Yes, March 1st, 2019. So uh, we're coming up um, on uh, just just under a year until we see this franchise come to an end. It is going to be about Hiccup and Toothless, the uh, dragon rider and dragon who um, essentially, the, well, here's the, I'll just read the synopsis to you. As Hiccup fulfills his dream of creating a peaceful dragon utopia, Toothless's discovery of an untamed, elusive mate draws the Night Fury away. When danger mounts at home and Hiccup's reign as village chief is tested, both dragon and rider must make impossible decisions to save their kind. So Dean Dubloy is back to direct. He's uh, co-directed the first film and directed the second film by himself. He's going to be directing the third film as well. Jay Baruchel, America Ferreira, Kate Blanchett, Kit Harrington, the rest of the voice cast are all, all going to be coming back to reprise their roles. And this movie is being billed as the series culmination, according to Variety. So there were some whispers uh, a couple years ago that a fourth movie might be happening. But as of right now, it seems like this is actually going to be the last film in the franchise. I'm kind of surprised because this series is is good and it presents a world that, you know, they could make movies uh, for the foreseeable future. And uh, I'm surprised that, you know, they're going to, you know, plant the flag and say, you know, this is the final movie. But, uh, you know, if this does bunkers business, then that's probably not the case. They could always. Yeah, and I was I was shocked to learn that there were six seasons of a How to Train Your Dragon television show that have been made. Uh, The first movie came out in 2010 and the second film came out in 2014. Like I said, the third one's coming out in 2019. But as of right between 2010 and today, there have been six seasons of a TV show that have debuted like on Netflix. And and I think uh, DreamWorks Animation was also responsible for that as well. So, um, yeah, yeah, maybe there are other ways for them to explore this property instead of just, you know, specific. Uh, big screen entries. Yeah, you know, when Netflix streaming was blowing up, they they wanted kids programming, and DreamWorks Animation was like, "We can give you that in like droves." Like, and they they produced like tons of series. I didn't know it was six seasons. That's that's insane. Uh, but let's move on. Uh, we talked a bit earlier about auteurs. Let's talk about one of the biggest auteurs working in film today, and that is Paul Thomas Anderson. His next film that he's working on currently has a screenplay that is 600 pages long. Chris, what is going on here? (laughs) Yeah. So uh, traditionally uh, it's not really a rule. It's not set in stone, but the basic gist is one page of a screenplay equals one minute, which is why most screenplays are 120 pages because that makes them, that rounds it out to two hours. So Paul Thomas Anderson says he currently has a screenplay that is 600 pages long, which if he filmed that as is, that would basically be a 10 hour movie. Now, uh, as a Paul Thomas Anderson fan, I would watch that, but I also know that's insane. So yeah, guys, let's, <laughs> let's just, let's go to proud crowdfunding. Let's convince the Netflix to just let him do a 10 hour movie. Like, might go for it. Why yeah. not? Sure. I would watch that. But he says um, he was on the Ringer podcast and basically he's going to try and pare that 600 pages down to something more manageable. I mean, we don't really know what this film is about. And he has a few projects he's said he's working on next for a while. I mean, he has a film he said he's currently co-writing with his eight-year-old daughter. He also has a project he wants to do with Tiffany Haddish. So uh, I don't think this is the same as those two projects. So I think he just has a bunch of things up in the air, but one of those things is a 600 page screenplay. 
when you said he was he has a project with his daughter, I was just imagining six hundred pages with like crayon uh, <laughs> <laughs> drawings. Uh, that might explain it. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, okay, so let's let's move on to our or actually no, before we move on to our final, uh, I want to get Ben's opinion on this. Would do, what would you rather see? Would you rather see this six hundred page screenplay pared down to a two and a half hour, three hour movie? You know, typical PTA. Or would you rather actually see this like monstrosity of like a ten hour thing, be it a, a television series or made for TV movie, be made? Man, it's a really tough question because I, I'm I just keep thinking about Twin Peaks: The Return, which uh, David Lynch talked a lot about that being an eighteen hour movie, and it worked. You know, it aired in installments, an hour long installments uh, on Showtime last year. And I reviewed all of it for the site. And it was like, it worked to a certain degree. Like some episodes worked really well as contained pieces of storytelling, but it really did feel like a, a larger story stretched out and, and split almost, uh, almost haphazardly in some points into 18 chunks. So, I don't know. There, there's a whole separate debate to be had about the validity of calling something a 10-hour movie or an 18-hour movie or whatever it is. But uh, let me ask you but, this: because I didn't watch the the new Twin Peaks. If they had released that on Netflix as one whole thing, would 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 you have had a problem with it? Um, no. I mean, I I would have just watched it at my own pace. I don't know if I would have, I, I actually, you know what? I probably would have just carved out a Saturday and just sat down and watched it, you know, 10 hours all the way through. Um, you know, whether that is the best way to view something, I guess entirely depends on the, the director and the writer and, and the, the collaboration they have in the story that they're trying to tell It's yeah. It's really tough to, to make this uh, distinction for a script that we don't really know what it's about. Yeah, and my guess is PTA does not want to, you know, shoot 10 hours in 70 millimeter only to have people watch it, binge watch it on a, you know, 60 inch screen in their, in their you know, living right. room. So yeah. it's probably not going to happen, but I can dream. Okay, this is the end of uh, today's Slash Film Daily. Uh, where can we find more of your work online, Ben? Uh, you can find me writing at slashfilm.com. You can track me down on Twitter at Ben Pears. Chris, where can we find more of you? Uh, I'm also at SlashFilm.com, and I'm on Twitter at CEvangelista413. You can find me at SlashFilm on Twitter. You can find this podcast, SlashFilm Daily, published every weekday on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, Peter at SlashFilm.com. Please go rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word. We'll see you tomorrow.